0: I am Thomas Solomon and you are listening to The VO2 Podcast. You know how much fuel is stored in your body. If you don't, see part one of this performance nutrition series. You know how your muscles burn fuel during exercise. If you don't, see part two. You know how long your stored fuel allows you to go. If you don't see part three. And you know how you can create a high carbohydrate availability before your race. If you don't see part four. But can you maintain high carbohydrate availability during your race? And will doing so improve your race day performance? Stay with me today and I will take you on a deep dive history lesson starting with the 1924 Boston Marathon to find out how we know what we now know. So far on this performance nutrition series, you have learned that a high carbohydrate availability can be established before your race with a high carb diet on the days before race day and a carb full breakfast on the morning of your race. The obvious missing component of your race day performance nutrition equation is can you maintain high carbohydrate availability during your race? Unlike our canine companions, who can rapidly replenish muscle glycogen levels during prolonged exercise even when carbohydrate intake is low, we are not blessed with glycogen-replenishing powers when on the go. When we move for prolonged periods, we deplete glycogen. Although some evidence in endurance-trained athletes shows that during prolonged three hours low-intensity cycling, Glycogen resynthesis can occur in inactive type 2, aka fast twitch muscle fibres, when carbohydrate is consumed. The amount is small and resynthesis does not occur in the type 1, the slow twitch, fibres being used. Consequently, if you want to increase carbohydrate availability during a race, you need to add some carbohydrate into the mix. In 1924, yep, 100 years ago, Sam Levine and colleagues at Harvard Medical School found that runners completing the Boston Marathon had lower blood glucose levels than when they started, and noted that the condition of the athletes at the end, symptoms of physical weakness, pallor, and collapse, was associated with their blood glucose levels. They described it as a picture of shock not unlike that produced by an overdose of insulin. Anyone who has hung out at the finish line of a marathon will relate very well to that description. At the Boston Marathon the following year, 17 athletes, including those who raced the previous year, were asked to eat a high-carbohydrate diet for 24 hours before the race and to start eating candy after about 24 kilometres into the race. They observed that the runners had a better condition at the finish line, their post-race blood glucose was higher than baseline, and their race times improved. About 15 years later, in 1939, the same Eric Christensen and Overhansen who found that drinking 200 grams of sugar water before exercise allowed untrained folks to ride for longer before hypoglycemia and fatigue occurred, also found that if the same sugar water was given at the point of fatigue, blood glucose levels were restored and subjects could ride for longer. These observations imply that a drop in blood glucose levels, hypoglycemia, is a cause of fatigue, but it took the Earth a few runs around the sun for anyone to delve deeper. In their 1967 paper showing that exercise depletes muscle glycogen and that the liver attempts to keep supplying glucose to the muscle by releasing more glucose into the blood, Jonas Bergstrom and Eric Hultman also found that intravenous glucose infusion helped reduce muscle glycogen use during exercise, but that muscle glycogen was still responsible for the greater part of the energy production during exercise, even when the blood sugar level is high. Subsequent work in endurance-trained athletes throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s showed that the decline in blood glucose contributes to fatigue during prolonged exercise, that glucose infusion during exercise can restore healthy blood glucose levels after hypoglycemia has developed, and that glucose infusion prolongs exercise time to exhaustion after muscle glycogen has been depleted during long duration, two to three hours, low to moderate intensity exercise. But the same studies showed that infusion doesn't prevent muscle glycogen depletion during exercise and doesn't improve high intensity time trial performance. Whew. To put all that into plain English, We've known since the 1960s that muscles keep munching through their glycogen during exercise, even if glucose is abundantly available in the blood, and that infusing glucose during exercise prevents hypoglycemia and delays fatigue. This sounds wonderful, but intravenous glucose infusion is neither allowed, it violates WADA's ethical code, nor is it practical during a race. So, The alternative is to eat carbohydrates like a normal human, just like Levine and colleagues examined in Boston in 1924. Surprisingly, after Christensen and Hansen's work in 1939, the role of carbohydrate ingestion on performance was largely ignored for a long old time. But in 1961, using carbon-14 radioisotopes of glucose, Reichardt and colleagues showed for the first time that exogenous glucose, that is glucose not produced in the body, can be burned during exercise to produce energy. Ten years later, using a similar method, Dave Kostel showed that ingested glucose is burned 6.5 times faster during exercise than at rest, while decreasing liver glucose output. This proved that eating glucose during exercise provides a fuel source to muscles to reduce the burden on the liver. In 1982, John Warren's lab found that when untrained regular folks drank sugar water, either 10 or 20 grams of glucose, every 15 minutes during a ride to exhaustion at about 60-65% to VO2 max following an overnight fast, hypoglycemia was prevented but time to exhaustion was unaffected when compared to water. But, as you are probably aware, studying untrained folks is not so useful for informing athletes' knowledge. Fear not, many studies have examined endurance-trained athletes. Later, in the 1980s, Ed Coyle and colleagues found that ingesting about 75 grams of maltodextrin, a glucose polymer, 30 minutes into a ride and 18 grams every 30 minutes thereafter prolonged time to exhaustion during high intensity cycling at about 70 to 80 percent of vo2 max from about 2 hours 14 minutes to 2 hours 37 minutes on average after an overnight fast when compared to water in a very similar follow-up study in 1986 they found that 140 grams of maltodextrin at 20 minutes and 28 grams every 20 minutes thereafter increased time to exhaustion from around three to about four hours when compared to water, and that hypoglycemia was prevented, carbohydrate oxidation rates were maintained, but that muscle glycogen depletion was unaffected. To better simulate race day conditions, in 1988 Tim Noakes and colleagues staged an outdoor 42km marathon. Runners tapered their training and were fed a high-carb diet for two days before the race, ate a carb-containing breakfast on the morning of the race, and drank, on average, either 10 grams of glucose, 38 grams of maltodextrin, or 44 grams of fructose every hour during the race. Similar to lab-based data, they found that blood glucose levels were maintained throughout the race, but that neither the amount nor the type of carbohydrate prevented muscle glycogen depletion. In the 1990s and 2000s, stable isotopes were used to deeply study the flux, that is the rate of movement into and out of tissues, and the oxidation, the burning to produce energy, of glucose in endurance-trained athletes during exercise, teaching us that glucose ingestion during prolonged exercise reduces liver glucose output but does not prevent muscle glycogen depletion. For example, data from Asker Ukendrup in 2004 showed that about 97-99% to 99% of all glucose taken up into muscle during exercise is burned, and that distributing low or high amounts of glucose throughout exercise suppresses liver glycogen liver glucose output and increases glucose uptake into muscle. In fact, ingesting about 22 grams of glucose or sucrose, a glucose fructose disaccharide every 15 minutes during exercise can completely suppress liver glucose output and prevent liver glycogen depletion. But muscle glycogen is eventually depleted during exercise even when as much as 360 grams of glucose is ingested. So, in simple words, ingesting carbohydrates during exercise does not prevent muscle glycogen breakdown. Muscle glycogen is always burned during exercise. Instead, carbohydrate feeding simply maintains blood glucose levels, which reduces the need for liver glucose output, sparing liver glycogen for longer all the while providing a continually high carbohydrate availability to the muscles. With that knowledge in mind, since we know that faster runners burn glucose at higher rates, faster runners will need to be more aware of their need for high carbohydrate availability during their race. Therefore, ingesting carbohydrate during a race allows glucose, the economical and rapid fuel, to be burned at the rate required to provide energy to the working muscles. So, yes, high carbohydrate availability can be maintained during a race. But to make an informed decision as to whether this is a good idea, there is a very important question to consider. Does carbohydrate intake during a race improve performance? The answer to this question is best answered by first considering the duration of your race. Since short duration exercise cannot deplete liver or muscle glycogen, carbohydrate intake is perhaps unnecessary during short races. Although some studies have shown that carbohydrate intake during events as short as one hour can assist performance, this only occurs in athletes who are fasted, When a high-carb diet is eaten on the days before trials and a high-carb breakfast is eaten on the morning of trials, no effect of during-exercise carbohydrate intake is seen during performance tests lasting about one hour. Therefore, always consider nutrition in the context of your race duration. Is it longer than your bodily stores of carbohydrates can last? To examine this question in detail, Let's jump back into John DeLorean's time-travelling car and head back to Boston. As I mentioned earlier, in 1924, while Europe was rationing sugar in the aftermath of World War I, Sam Levine and colleagues at Harvard Medical School were dishing it out to runners competing in the Boston Marathon. This was to help prevent the signs of hypoglycemia they had observed in the athletes at the end of the race the previous year. As you already know, they asked 17 athletes, including those who raced the previous year, to eat a high-carb diet for 24 hours before the race. But they also asked them to start eating candy about 24 kilometres into the race. The result? Athletes had a better condition at the finish line. Higher post-race blood glucose levels than pre-race, and they completed the marathon quicker than the previous year. Those investigators at Harvard hypothesised that by preventing hypoglycemia during a prolonged high-intensity race, they could prevent fatigue and improve performance. Of course, we cannot know that their intervention was the direct cause of better performance, because they did not conduct a randomised controlled trial, an RCT, and a lot can change in a year. Better training, better taper, cooler weather. Fortunately, many RCTs, Randomised Controlled Trials, have been completed over the last 50 years, permitting systematic reviews and meta-analyses of the evidence. A 2011 meta-analysis of 88 RCTs providing carbohydrate before and or during exercise to exhaustion or a time trial concluded that ingesting carbohydrate compared to water, with an appropriate composition at an appropriate rate, can improve endurance performance by about 2 to 6%. Another 2011 meta-analysis found a small 2% to moderate 7.5% improvement in time trial or time to exhaustion performance when 30 to 80 grams per hour of carbs are ingested during exercise. And a 2014 meta-regression by Trent Stellingworth and Greg Cox found a relationship between increasing exercise time and the percent increase in performance with carb intake versus water, stating that multiple transportable carbohydrates, for example glucose and fructose, may be beneficial in prolonged exercise, but that athletes should tailor their needs based on tolerance. These analyses are convincing, but these systematic reviews did not use very stringent inclusion criteria and also included studies in which subjects were fasted. Because, as you already know, it is not particularly wise for an endurance athlete to line up with a low liver glycogen level on race day. It is more appropriate, therefore, to examine studies in which subjects have eaten breakfast before testing. In 2018, Aird and colleagues systematically reviewed studies that compared fed versus fasted state exercise on performance, concluding that eating carbohydrates and carb-containing meals before exercise improves aerobic performance for longer efforts, longer than 60 minutes, but not for short-duration performance, less than 60 minutes. Useful info? Yes. But another pitfall to these meta-analyses is that many of the included trials had a long-duration, one to two hours, moderate-intensity exercise bout, presumably to deplete glycogen, immediately before a performance test. I've never understood what scientists are trying to model with this design because it doesn't reflect many race scenarios, except maybe an often futile solo breakaway effort in a cycling road race. But... Even then, said cyclist, let's call him Jens Voigt, would have been well-fed up to the point he decided to give it large. So, what about real-life performance studies? The 2011 meta-analysis from Tomasi and colleagues separated performance tests from pre-exercise and performance test studies, finding a slightly smaller 2% performance improvement With 30 to 80 grams per hour of carb ingestion when subjects have not completed a pre-exercise bout, versus a 7.5% improvement when they have. I.e., during race feeding will enhance performance, but more so when glycogen stores are low from the start, which is not an ideal scenario to put yourself in. Also convincing, but one more nuance remains. Many studies examine performance with a time to exhaustion ride or run at a low to moderate intensity, 60 to 70% of VO2 max. What does that really tell us about performance? A time trial is more informative. In 2013, Colombani and colleagues found only 17 RCTs, one running, one soccer, and 15 cycling that mimicked real life examining the effect of carbohydrate intake before or during a time trial in endurance-trained athletes who had eaten breakfast. But they found an unlikely effect with time trials up to about 70 minutes and a less-than-compelling ergogenic effect with time trials longer than 70 minutes. They used appropriately stringent inclusion criteria, excluding hundreds of papers, noting the general low quality of studies, commenting that the absence of clear evidence is, nevertheless, not clear evidence of an absent effect. In 2016, when more RCTs were published, Pock, Muller and colleagues completed a similar meta-analysis of time trials in athletes who had eaten a pre-trial meal a breakfast. They found that ingesting carbs in a concentration range of 6-8% to that means 6 to 8 grams per 100 mils of fluid, before and or while exercising longer than 90 minutes improves performance. But due to the lack of sufficient RCTs, Pockmuller et al. commented that findings cannot yet confidently extrapolate to elite athletes or female athletes, and more work is needed on bouts lasting less than 90 minutes and in sports besides cycling. This all sounds ace, but if, like me, you have followed this body of evidence for nearly 20 years, it will be clear that, in general, we know a lot, but there is a lack of randomised controlled trials in elite athletes, in female athletes and in real race-like settings. This will keep scientists from gazing into blank spaces for a few more moons to come. Furthermore, most studies have examined cyclists. So, I was very excited in 2016 to see Patrick Wilson publish a critical review of all known studies and meta-analyses to answer the question, does carbohydrate intake during endurance running improve performance? He concluded that running performance is most likely improved during events longer than two hours, when 100 to 200 mL of a carbohydrate drink is drunk every 15 to 20 minutes. Although several studies show benefits for tasks lasting 90 to 120 minutes, I was less excited to see how the limited the scientific evidence base is in running. Notably, there is a lack of studies in runners, including a lack of studies examining gels and foods in runners. Therefore, in running, we largely apply cycling-based scientific evidence to generate running-based empirical evidence through observation in the field. And in doing so, does carbohydrate intake during a long race improve performance? It did in the 1920s in Boston, and it does now. Given what Levine and his colleagues learned at the Boston Marathon 100 years ago, little has really changed. A high carbohydrate availability is key for successful race day performance. So far in this series, I have made a deep dive into the individual scientific studies and the systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have brought us to where our knowledge is today. But to relay the synthesis of evidence to the target audience, to coaches and athletes, governing bodies and professional societies publish guidelines. So, what do sports nutrition guidelines say? Older guidelines from the 1990s recommended that endurance athletes should consume a total of about 600 grams every day of carbohydrate during heavy training, and to consume carbohydrates during exercise, generally in the form of solutions containing glucose, sucrose, or maltodextrin, at a rate of 30 to 60 grams per hour. The old, and, now retired, American College of Sports Medicine, the ACSM, position stand from 2009, gave similar advice. Daily intake of 6 to 10 grams of carb per body weight per day, that's about 400 to 650 grams per day, and 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour during exercise. With their ears to the ground of the emerging evidence from science and practice, in 2011, Louise Burke, John Hawley, and Asker Jeukendrup proposed an update to the recommendations, stating that carbohydrate intake during exercise should be scaled according to the characteristics of the event. They suggested that athletes could fluctuate daily carbohydrate intake relative to their needs, the emergence of carbohydrate periodization and that, during exercise, smaller amounts of carbs, say 30 grams per hour, could be ingested during shorter events, with higher rates of intake 60, 90, even 120 grams per hour during longer events. In recent years, several governing bodies and reputable societies have updated their sports nutrition guidelines. In 2016, the ACSM published their new Nutrition and Athletic Performance Position Statement, In 2018 the international society of sports nutrition the issn published their exercise and sports nutrition review update and in 2019 the international journal of sports nutrition and exercise metabolism dedicated an entire volume of 17 papers to the iaaf now world athletics consensus statement on nutrition for athletics plus there was a specific focus on nutrition for ultramarathon running as part of the 2019 IAAF consensus statement. And also in 2019, the ISSN published their position stand on nutritional considerations for single stage ultramarathon training and racing. To summarize what these guidelines say about carbohydrate intake, for general endurance athletes, The ACSM recommends basing daily carb intake on training load. Pre-race carb loading with a diet containing 10 to 12 grams per kilo per day of carbohydrates for 36 to 48 hours for events longer than 90 minutes. Pre-race feeding one to four hours before the race with one to four grams per kilo of carbohydrates. And during race carb intake based on duration up to 45 minutes, no carbs needed, 45 to 75 minutes, a mouth rinse or small carbohydrate amount, one to two and a half hours, 30 to 60 grams per hour of carbs, and longer than two and a half hours, up to 90 grams per hour of carbohydrates. The IAAF recommends a pre-race carb loading with 10 to 12 grams per kilo per day of carbohydrates for 36 to 48 hours before the race, A pre race meal, one to four hours before the race, containing one to four grams per kilo of carbohydrates. And during race, nutrition, depending on race duration 45 to 75 minutes, a mouth rinse or small carbohydrate amount, one to two and a half hours, 30 to 60 grams per hour of carbs, longer than two and a half hours, up to 90 grams per hour of carbs. And the ISSN recommends consuming 30 to 60 grams per hour of carbohydrate in a 6 to 8% carbohydrate electrolyte solution every 10 to 15 minutes throughout high intensity exercise longer than 90 minutes. And specifically for ultra distance runners, the ISSN recommends a general moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Of about 5 to 8 grams per kilo per day during training and during a race to prevent caloric deficits. To aim to consume 150 to 400 kilocalories of energy per hour, to include 30 to 50 grams per hour of carbohydrates and 5 to 10 grams per hour of protein from a variety of calorie dense foods while considering food palatability, tolerance, and savoury versus sweet preference in longer races. While the IAAF recommends consuming about 0.8 to 1 gram per kilo per hour of carbohydrate during exercise in a 6 to 10% weight to volume solution. Whew. As you can see, there's a little bit of variation between the various position statements, which is no surprise when different groups of experts evaluate evidence in its entirety, but Promisingly, the general sentiments are very similar and are indeed running down the same trails. What can you put in your performance nutrition toolbox? Since the evidence shows that carbohydrate ingestion allows exercise to continue even if glycogen levels are depleted, then theoretically you could start the race with low liver and muscle glycogen if enough carbohydrates can be ingested during a race to meet the metabolic demand of your muscles. But this is a bloody big risk. The evidence also shows that low muscle glycogen reduces power output, possibly due to a direct blunting of muscle contractility. Furthermore, if you cannot ingest enough carbohydrate during the race, due to poor logistics, aversion or sickness, and so on, then you will very quickly encounter Darth Vader, the Sith Lord of Fatigue. Don't run that risk, especially when considering how oh so simple it is to start a race with high liver and muscle glycogen levels. On your A race day, you will need to line up with a high carbohydrate availability And after the B of the bang, if your race is long, you should be planning to maintain high carbohydrate availability throughout the race. Doing so will help delay fatigue for as long as possible by sparing liver glycogen, keeping blood glucose within the normal range, and supplying glucose to the hungry muscles. As Renato Canova's Kenyan athletes say, when I finish the fuel, I stop. The best distance runners on earth understand their metabolic limitations very well. Establishing and maintaining high carbohydrate availability during your race can be achieved with three simple steps. Number one, muscle glycogen supercompensation, aka carbo-loading, is probably best achieved by eating a high carbohydrate diet for the 24 to 48 hours before race day while tapering your training or resting altogether. Carbo loading in this way is especially important if you typically eat a low carbohydrate diet. Number two, your liver glycogen store, which is depleted after a night of sleep, will be maximized if you eat a high carbohydrate breakfast on race day two to four hours before gun time. Number three, consuming carbohydrates at regular intervals from the start of a race lasting around 60 minutes or longer will help delay glycogen depletion and maintain blood glucose levels for as long as possible. So, if you haven't already guessed it, what Sam Levine and colleagues discovered in 1924 at the Boston Marathon, to eat lots of carbs for the 24 hours before a race, on the morning of the race, and during the race, Is about as simple and accurate a message as anyone can put in a bottle. Some folks are just ahead of their time. Sports nutrition guidelines for establishing and maintaining high carb availability on race day are pretty clear and very useful. They also confirm the notion that high carbohydrate availability is a key facet of your endurance performance. The various guidelines and position statements are also built on scientific evidence, which is good, but scientific evidence must always be balanced with empirical evidence from coaches and feedback from athletes. Why? Well, because there is no one-size-fits-all approach. In their utility, the specifics of sports nutrition guidelines, the grams per day and the grams per hour, are rather generalised and should not be used in a cookie-cutter type way. Consequently, one key question remains. How can you maintain high carbohydrate availability on race day? Stay tuned and find out in the final part of this series. Until that time, keep training smart. I occasionally mention brands and products, but it is important to know that I am not sponsored by or receiving advertisement royalties from anyone. I have conducted biomedical research for which I have received research money from publicly funded national research councils and medical charities, and also from private companies including Novo Nordisk Foundation, AstraZeneca, Amelin, the AP Muller Foundation, and the Augustinus Foundation. These companies had no control over the research design, data analysis or publication outcomes of my work. Any recommendations I make are, and always will be, based on my own views and opinions shaped by the evidence available. The information I provide is not medical advice. Before making any changes to your habits of daily living based on any information I provide, always ensure it is safe for you to do so and consult your doctor if you are ever unsure.